0: welcome to the down about down podcast from county down northern ireland with your host chris scott for your ears only Welcome along to the Down About Down podcast with me,
1: your host Chris Scott, and thank you for joining me again, and thank you for lending me your ears. In this podcast, I'm heading over to Bransford area of Newcastle and County Down for a conversation with local author Judy Grove-White. Judy has recently published her second book titled The Bus Stops at Burndale Corner, a story of Newcastle, 1946 to 1952 and Judy talks to me about her own background and also about her first book published a number of years ago called Newcastle Cloudy Down 1939 to 1945 Snapshots from a Family Diary. A fascinating insight into Newcastle's past.
0: Chatting with Chris on the Down About Down podcast. I was flicking through the Belfast Telegraph,
1: the 8th of July 1977, and this next uh, lady who I'm with, uh, I'm out of Brantz for today, she's just looking at me going, what is he going to say? But your name appeared in the Belfast Telegraph, 8th of July 1977, well, along with hundreds of other people, Bachelor of Arts. That's right. That's right. Judy. Groves White, welcome.
2: <laughs> thanks very much, Chris, and thanks very much for uh, doing this podcast. That's great. Thanks very much.
1: Th- thank you for your time, but uh, 1977, it seems like a long time ago.
2: It is a long time ago, and when I'm, I uh, talked with friends who were around at the same time, and they can't believe that we've been friends for that number of years. But yeah, I was at uh, graduating from Queens with a, a degree in uh, history and politics, and uh, it I was a thoroughly I thoroughly enjoyed the time in Queens again, that was a strange time because it was in the middle of the troubles and uh I remember walking down we were in Queen's Elms Res, Halls of residence, and walking down uh to a, an event at the the old q f t which was around the corner and uh it was part of the Queen's Festival that time. I think it was Robert Powell was giving a talk. Uh, and walking down there, and a, a soldier, sort of hiding behind the the wall, you know, with his gun there, and you uh, just, I'm walking back, and you just didn't think of the, of the dangers of, uh, of it at that time. But it was a a, lo- a lovely time.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and there's been a lot of water under the bridge since that but we're going back to early waters now because you have brought out two books and and, and very recently one has been released uh, called the bus stops at Burrendale corner now we're not that far from Burrendale corner at the moment where we're actually recording this Judy
2: no no we're only a couple of miles down the road uh, from Burrendale and uh, Burrendale was where my grandparents lived uh, They moved there in the late 1930s to the house that was there before the hotel. And they moved there with their daughter, who was my mother, and uh, their son, Alan. And they had moved there. They'd retired. They'd been out in India uh, working. He was working on on the railways as an engineer. And originally they were from the Dungannon Coal Island area. But uh, I think they probably moved here because of the seaside town and the gulf. They were both very keen golfers. So uh, they moved into Barndale and they lived there. and My grandfather died in the late 60s and my mother grandmother died uh, early 70s. So uh, they were there until that time.
1: So you actually knew your grandparents and you had conversations with them?
2: Yes, yes, when we were children we would have come over. Uh we were living in Scotland at that time, so we would have come over for holidays and uh we used to love coming over to Barndale because it was such a a, a magical place for children, the garden and the house. My grandparents weren't uh formal in any way, you know, they had dogs and uh It was just a a very relaxed sort of lifestyle. And so it was lovely going in and uh, discovering the, the gardens and then also being able to walk up to Newcastle and going onto the beach or visiting the shops and spending our pocket money.
1: Yeah, brilliant times. You know, how much did you absorb at that stage? Those stories and 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 things that grandparents may have talked about, although and sometimes in those days they didn't talk in front of children. But I mean, what what did you absorb?
2: No, my my grandparents didn't talk so much about that. That it was my, more my mother who uh, would have told us about stories uh, about my about living in Barndale and uh, about living in there during the war and the soldiers. American soldiers and uh, they would have been invited into the house and uh, so that was something that that I remember more than my grandparents uh, talking about their war experiences or that time I think they sort of lived from day to day they didn't think much back to what it was like in those days you know they just lived for the day rather than looking back but uh, I think as I say afterwards you heard more about what mum would have uh remembered about growing up and uh she remembers the as I say the war and having to make up clothes because of the war the rationing clothes rationing so you had to be very careful with your with your clothes <laughs> <laughs> and uh she had a great time you know I mean, the the there was plenty going on during the war she was been in about eighteen nineteen at that stage and my grandmother uh was a very sociable person, so she would have uh, enjoyed having soldiers coming in and chatting them and because she had lived away before she was married, she worked in uh in Geneva and uh worked with the League of Nations when it was set up so she would have uh, enjoyed that sort of talking to people from different countries.
0: Chris Scott on the Down About Down podcast. That's amazing. Now, you yourself um, became a librarian,
1: is that right? Or you worked for the library service?
2: I did, yes. Uh did various things before, and then I joined the library services in, in the early 90s and uh was work worked there for the twenty thirty years so it was again it was uh an interesting career. you sort of meet so many people and uh, different uh different ways of of providing a library service as well you know not just the branch library but I worked on mobile libraries and a library that went round the libraries to refresh their stock people the librarians could have come on and chosen what books they wanted. From the from this mobile library, but yeah, things have changed from the the old times when we would have had the the cards. People would have borrowed books, and you would have put the cards in the wee brown cards, and they would have. Been, every morning, you would have had to change the card index and change the date so that the fines had to be slotted in different. <laughs> and now it's all computerised, but uh, it was easier to uh, remember how many people came in and and uh, you could identify their names as well more easily than now that it's computerised, it's not so easy You know, you've
1: just brought back memories there in Lisburn I remember going to Lisburn Library, of course you had the little, um, yeah
2: yeah. Yeah. I remember being out in the mobile one day and uh, dropping one of these trays on the floor and having to pick them all up and try and put them back into the right (laughs) order
1: (laughs) Are there many librarians who have written books? There are, I know a man in the um, Linen Hall Library certainly did Uh, So this was a natural follow-on, was it, from, from your profession?
2: Uh, in a way it was, yes, because, uh, again, libraries and newspapers are very connected. You know, the, the, the libraries have a collection of newspapers and it was also a big thing of the reference library. When I worked, I worked in the old library headquarters in ballin hinch for about 10 years and uh, the reference library there one of the things that they would have used would have been newspapers to answer queries mm-hmm. and uh, they would have had old records of council records and all these sorts of things uh, which again are all part of the day-to-day life uh, that i used when I, I did a bit of research into uh, into midwives and so i used a lot of the the old records from the board of guardians which was sort of the before the National Health Service, uh, there were two. you could either pay for your medical treatment or there was a Board of Guardian system where you had vouchers, tickets that you paid for to have midwives or go to see the doctor in the dispensary here in in Brinesford, just down the road there. And that would have been part of the Board of Guardian mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And so there were... Quite amazing records in the Board of Guardians about conditions and about things like suicides and people being born midwives and and how much they've got paid for this and all this sort of thing. So that's mm-hmm. and newspapers are, are are follow on from that because you get the day to day sort of uh, what's going on in the in the town and uh, who's been. I mean that was one of the things I found and that was the uh the courts, you know, and the the punishment. I mean one man got I don't know how many months hard labour for stealing a pair of trousers from a shop, you know, so so things have changed. <laughs> things have changed. And
1: it sort of puts life in perspective, doesn't it? You know, when you do start looking back on, on, on things. I used to say, you know, when I was talking to people, yeah, you can go back through the old newspapers and you, you, people were talking about the history in the good old days. And I said, well, to be really honest, everything that I have read, the only thing that hasn't happened in the old days was stealing cars because there weren't any, but everything else was there in society.
2: Well, that's true. I mean, we, we still have the same things cropping up. There's still the same disputes and there's still the same problems. Housing, people still complaining about housing, still complaining about heating, still complaining about people knocking down you know things like that you know all these things which people would complain about now you know still happened then but just in a different different way yeah
1: judy as a librarian um you know a lot of things have become digitized now and uh, some people don't really have access to that as a local person in the community, where can I go to? What I mean, what does the library hold, you know from your time there? You know, what what things can help people that you you've obviously found a lot of information there, so what what could I do as a citizen that doesn't work in the library and you know what what's there, what's available?
2: Well, the, the library still has uh newspapers on microfilm. Um so that means you go into Downpatrick it would be the nearest library here that would have copies of Down Quarter, Morning Observer. I'm not sure if they have a newsletter, I'm not sure whether that's there or whether that's in Newry, but Down Recorder and the Morning Observer definitely and uh, the librarian there would help you to put it onto the microphone and then you just search through it. It's not itemised or anything so you have to have a basic idea of what year you want to, to look at, mm-hmm. but it's fascinating to be able to look through those newspaper reports and uh, you can get distracted very easily, but mm-hmm. So there's that, and there's maps that you can look at. I always find maps are fascinating uh, to look at as well. And there's also the old guidebooks that you can look at as well, going back to 1900s. You know, you can look up street directories again. That was one of the things I found in the looking up the in this book about Newcastle, uh, looking up the street directories and seeing the names of people and some of the names of the the uh, Streets which are no longer there, you know, so that was fascinating as well. Is that right? I
1: mean, I didn't know that. In Newcastle, there there are streets that are no longer there. Was it, were they replaced? What was going on? Was it just new buildings and put where streets were? Or?
2: Yeah, it could be that, or it could be just names that people don't longer no longer oh, yeah. use. Delary sure. Terrace was one of them, and I think that's up near the harbour somewhere. But it's it's probably a lot of people will still recognise it, but yeah. it's not one of those names that are in in regular use, you know, yeah.
1: So you used a variety of sources that you had access to then and and brought them together cleverly into these books but there were other additives put into that as well which were more personal touches tell us something about that.
2: Well again I used some of my diaries that my grandfather had written which I had access to and uh, I also had family stories from my mother my mother uh would have had memories uh again she remembers the during the blitz uh, that that they were able to hear that from where they were in Burnda and going out they had to, in Barndale there was a yard at the back, and there were old pigsties and they would be able to hide in those because of the the noise from the from the blitz um so things like that uh sort of coloured the stories and I was also very uh, able, I was very pleased to be able to to interview a a man who was a a 10 or 11 year old at that time and he was able to tell me stories of some of the shops that were there and of how he saw the the soldiers sort of camped outside his house you know with their radio on talking to people up in the mountains Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so all those sorts of things uh, were able to Put a bit of extra, uh, local, personal touches into the books.
1: I'm right in saying that your grandfather kept diaries then, so you were able to sort of more in what was in the newspapers and what was going on in his diary as well, and try and bring that back to life again in a way.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, he had diaries, uh, mostly. Most most days he would have he would have written in in the diaries, and he was a a, a keen gardener, so a lot of his entries were things like uh, you know, hard frost or it had been raining very heavily, or the rabbits had got in and eaten the eaten his uh, runner bean shoots or he had to put stuff out for the for the uh the slugs had been in and eaten the lettuce and uh then he would have used some of his surplus vegetables and he would have taken them up to the local shops to sell. And things like he would have gone out to uh, Mahara River and sat there for four hours trying to catch brown trout. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes he was successful and sometimes he wasn't. And then then just being able to walk up the hill, walk up the road to Newcastle and the different ways he would have walked up and what he would have seen when he was walking up. Um, He would have noticed the state of the river as he was walking up or somebody's house you know and things like that so just me comments like that and uh one of the surprising things was how far they would have walked i mean burndale would have been about mile mile and a half from newcastle so it was still quite a, a while where to walk i mean he would have been in his 50s 60s so uh, they walked a lot or my grandmother would have cycled into into town as well
1: were there actual local people mentioned in those stories as well? And you know, so you had been walking past Joe Brog's house, and 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 there had been a comment about that as well.
2: Yeah, that's right. There were local comments. I mean, the the person who lived beh- behind them was Miss Sadie Cox, so he would have met her, or would have met one of the local farmers, the Annets or the Spears, and would have talked about the, the local rates or the state of the the river or things like that, or Miss Cox's. Cows escaped into the garden, and trampled on the on the lawn. And him having to fill up the the the, uh, the holes in the in the lawn afterwards. So and then he would have met um, otherwise met Commander Kilgore in the in the town and was talking about daffodils and things like that. You know. So he mentions a lot of people, and uh, he mentions also going up to collect the papers. That was the other thing he would have done on a daily basis. And collecting sweets, he like was a had a sweet tooth.
0: Chatting with Chris on the Down About Down podcast. So you finished that and you stopped in 1945.
1: Had you the intention at that stage to carry on, or did it sort of grow on you over time? Or I'm never going to do that again? You know, what was your thought once you would finished that?
2: Well, that was the the big th- the big thing was to get the the story of the war out. Uh, I've been working on that for some years, so that was my big accomplishment and it was the first book of that type that I'd written so it was uh, quite daunting to to have it published and then it was very gratifying when I did get good uh, reaction back to it so once I had done that and then people said oh you know I really enjoyed that so I thought well I'll do another one and the second one came about because there'd been a lot of changes in Newcastle after the war and there was also a lot of changes within the family with my mother uh, going out and about and then obviously eventually meeting my father. And so I thought, well, let's finish it off when they get married and that would be a natural conclusion to that. Which
1: was 1952, that?
2: 1952, yeah. And as I say, there were lots of things happening in Newcastle between the war and 1952. And I thought, well, that's a good opportunity to incorporate all of that.
1: Tell us something about that, because the war the war had ended and VE Day and so on. There were lots of celebrations, but life was still difficult, though. I mean, there were still rationing, as was my understanding.
2: Yeah, there was still rationing. And at one stage in England, they rationed potatoes. But they never brought that in over here whether it was because of the sensitivities towards the famine and it was also partly because with Northern Ireland being more rural, there was better supply. But uh, things like fuel, I mean, we're talking about f- fuel poverty over here at the moment, but at that stage, one stage after the war, uh, there was a shortage of fuel because the war had uh, had prevented... Um, some things you know so that is still having a knock-on effect and with the cold war as well that was having an effect so there was a stage where we were getting coal from Scotland but not from uh, the west coast of Scotland it was coming from the east coast and having to travel around making a quite a long journey from one from the east coast to, to Ireland to, to bring coal so you were having to be very careful about your fuel at that stage and I think one stage Coal decided to stop its public lighting to to uh, ease up on the on the fuel consumption. Oh, there's
1: something we didn't know. Yeah, OK. So the coal boats were have to come in. I know Levin and Killalaya, they talk about where the coal quay was, so it was the same in Newcastle then, was it?
2: Well, I mean, Dundrum Port was still busy, very busy. There would have been boats coming in to, to Dundrum and uh, I think whether they used the the trains to transport the, the coal or whether it was the the roads but uh yeah dundrum would have been a port as well as kilkeel but uh yeah i mean that that there would have been a lot of stuff coming in into to dundrum uh, generally, yeah.
1: I think you mentioned in, in in the book about housing. Then, so obviously, housing is always developing as it is now. But in those days, it had really just starting, you know, to expand.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it was a huge. It was over a hundred houses built uh, in the area between, well, b- between nineteen forty six and fifty two. There were uh, a lot of houses built privately in the tully area. And then there were also houses which were built by the Housing Trust uh, for people who were called workers' houses. But uh, So there were prefab houses, a mixture of prefab houses, plus also uh, brick-built houses. And they were mostly in and around the Castlewell and Dundrum road areas. And the prefab houses were sent over in kits from England. And they were originally intended to be for 10 years but some stayed on for longer than that Mm -hmm. so when you think about it, I mean that was a huge amount of change within that area, Castlewell and there was the uh, Dunwallan Park, Burner Green, they were all built in that area and then houses along the Dundrum Road and then the Tully Brannigan Estate uh, houses that you would have seen as being there for years, they were all built uh, in and around that time, and there was one dispute with one of the, with the housing contractor who wanted to build a, a shopping centre in Tullybranagan, but uh, the council said no. A lot of the councillors were local shopkeepers who, who didn't yeah. want the competition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So that that was uh, the the some of the workers uh, marched on the council. Because their jobs were on the line, you know, if the the shopping, the housing contractor was threatening to pull out if they didn't get the, the housing centre built or the shopping centre built.
1: And then you, you'd mentioned offer, but I know you've covered it in the book the railway, then, we're, were all closing down basically at that stage.
2: Yes, yeah, again, after the war, the uh, trains were being less used. During the war, of course, there was a lot more transport or a lot more people using the, the trains whereas after the war people were starting to use their own transport and the buses were coming in so the trains were losing money at that stage they were still under the old Belfast County Down Railway separate uh, companies and then they were all amalgamated under the Ulster Transport Authority but they were still losing money and the, no money had been put into refurbishing the the trains so they weren't a very comfortable ride I don't think you know so yeah, so the Belfast County Down Railway did or the Ulster Transport Authority decided to stop trains coming from the Belfast through Balnehinch down Patrick, that line into Newcastle in nineteen fifty. But there were still trains coming from the Belfast and then coming down to Castlewellan and across to Newcastle. So you could have come that way. And that was stayed on for a few more years.
1: You know my memories of of Newcastle as a child, and maybe their their memories out sort of encapsulated in photographs, and you think you remember it because you were in the photograph but, you know this was the big place in the early 1970s You came to Newcastle to the beach the generation before before me and even my grandfather this was the place to go for a day out, and it was a day out um, If you were having your honeymoon, you came to Newcastle do you know it was it was somewhere miles away that that you know you, it was a special day. How do you see the way the development's going through this period of time, the forties to the fifties, is that when it was really opening up to people?
2: Well, I mean, even during the war, you would have had people coming to Newcastle for day trips. I mean, it, there were obviously people before that who would have come over from Scotland. Glasgow would have been there would have been people coming over from Glasgow to Newcastle. But because during the war there were travel restrictions, so you couldn't come across so it was more local people who would have come down to Newcastle during the war. Uh, but they were also able to go down to down south to Bondoran or Dublin or whatever. But after the war, it was still people coming down to Newcastle, maybe more for day trips, but also for, for holidays. Uh, but you start getting things like caravans starting to come in. And uh, so there's a change in the way people are holidaying. Uh, as well, it was still a big thing, you know. The the Newcastle council still had their entertainment committee, and they still had their summer entertainment. Uh, one of the big things after the war, one of the big draws was they would have got a a naval vessel to come down uh, for the July holidays, and they would have moored outside in the harbour, and then people would have been able to go take boat trips across to the to the boat. Uh, and then there would have been the naval officers were have been in and around the, the town and there would have been dances as well so it was all part of the, the excitement, there would have been fireworks and the Puro's would still have been on as well
1: The Puro's, what, what was that like A, a an entertainment travelling entertainment am I right on that?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. there would have been yeah. like a dance, comedy oh. singing, different okay. Uh, and they would have been down on the bandstand which was on the promenade so all through the war and after the war there would have been different troops that would have have come in to to play and entertain so they would have a morning or an afternoon uh, session and then an evening session and then during the war there would also have been army bands who would have entertained as well
1: you know, I, I I did a little bit of research in October 1940 military band parade and tank parade held in Newcastle, but that was to raise uh, money for the war savings campaign. So they sort of combined yeah. a bit of entertainment, but it was there was a purpose to it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's it. They would have been uh, trying to to raise money for the war effort, so that would have been part of it, and also they would have had entertainments to try and get people to maybe join the army or take part in mm-hmm. in the. Uh, you know recruit because you didn't have to to join the army there's no uh there was no compulsory yeah we weren't yeah no we weren't, no yeah. that's right
1: that's right mm-hmm. uh, 1945 just uh, it's, it is amazing the papers what you do pick up um Belgian soldiers had been in a collision, Bransford an Avenue and shimna Road, and uh, then St Mary's Hall had been requisitioned by the military. It had such an impact on life here,
2: really. It did, because most of the, the local cafes and halls were requisitioned during the war for the army, and they would also have requisitioned, I mean, Slade Donald was requisitioned at one stage for a refugee, to house refugees. Um, So a lot of the houses and buildings would have been used for the army and uh, it was only just after the war when some of the the halls were allowed to be used for Mm -hmm. what they were originally intended for.
1: As you rightly said, every year about August or September time, there was a massive uh, entertainment display put on in Newcastle with the fireworks. Military band parade, fireworks display in the Donner Domains. Mm-hmm. Thursday the 21st at 8pm, the band of the Royal Irish, Royal Irish Fusiliers, Toy Soldiers on Parade. What did that mean?
2: I didn't come across that, no, Toy Soldiers, no. But uh, yeah, generally there was a mixture of, of entertainment and it was fairly basic, you know, there's fireworks, there was swimming gala, there was pitch and putt golf. Mm-hmm. Tournaments. There was Jim um, Uh So a lot of the stuff that maybe people re- still remember from their childhood, you know, that was still still going on. Uh, I suppose there's no new ideas for for entertainment. Mm-hmm.
1: And and life was changing as well. You know, in the outside of here, mm-hmm. uh, within royalty even as well. Television, uh, music was changing. It was going into we we're going into a rock and roll era. There was so much happening at that time.
2: Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, television, I mean, it's incredible to believe that television was only starting up in the 50s and they were talking about bringing in an aerial to Northern Ireland and that they were hoping that by 1953, when the Queen Elizabeth was to be crowned, that people would be able to watch that on TV. So before that, people were reliant on radio, newspapers and things like that. But, yeah, things have changed quite a lot.
1: <laughs> when you were researching for your books, what about photographs? Where, did you find those hard to obtain because of the nature of the, the time, I suppose, that there were there were only so many box cameras and brownies about at that stage?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't have had photo- cameras. I mean, I have been lucky that we had some family photographs from that time. But uh, the down recorder certainly had no photo photographs at that stage and the Morn Observer it started in 1949 and it did have some photographs so I was able to take some photographs from them but also from some of the other uh, newspapers the Belfast Telegraph newsletter they would have had photographs uh, I was able to think it was the newsletter had photos of a of a mock battle that they had during the war between the Home Guard and uh, the Real Army uh, again that I was taking it from a digital source so some of the the image image quality is not great but
0: uh. Chris Scott on the down about down podcast interesting what you said there the home guard and the real army which was exactly
1: the impression I was given by a gentleman who interviewed not that long ago one of the existing members of the home guard and it was a bit of a, a dad's army he told me so did you find that I mean were there interesting stories out there
2: There were. I mean, again, my grandfather was in the Home Guard and one of the stories that my mother told was of him going up to Dundrum Castle with another man, local Gerald Ansley, to man the the barricades up there uh, with a flask or something in their pockets. (laughs) But I've also heard of other stories of people who would have gone through Mahara and uh, instead of going on would have turned right into the pub, you know, uh-huh. And that's where oh, they yes, ended up. Yes, yes, yes. But again, one of the other stories is that, you know, the Home Guard were maybe working during the day and then doing this in the evening. So mm-hmm. it's a long day for mm-hmm. for them. Course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can understand there was a bit of, of uh, lightheartedness as well. So, y-
1: you know, you have two books sitting here in front of me. Mm-hmm. Where do you go from here?
2: Well, that's that's the question. I'm not sure whether to go on after the 1952 further on or to try something else so that's still a a question mark i haven't decided yet
1: it would be a very interesting subject you you know you've obviously a great knowledge and i'm sure you've i'm sure it was difficult to put everything into a book i'm sure you had to leave lots out as well
2: that's right it's it's trying to work out what do you put in and what do you leave out Uh, because certainly with the war there was so much (laughs) that wasn't put in um so you have to try and and work out what's going to be interesting what what do people really want to find out and uh also you don't want it to be too boring so you want it to be fairly uh short
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah, i get that so uh, one of the interesting aspects as well which you didn't mention was the national health service i mean that mm-hmm. had such a transformation within life and and um, as it started to establish itself because before that my understanding you know doctors you had to pay and you had to go to the local folk charmer or medicine charmer or whatever to get mm-hmm. skin disorders sorted out to get all those little things and life changed after that i think
2: yeah it certainly did uh, the National Health Service came in 1948, so they were saying th- even things like uh, glasses, free prescription glasses. There was a huge demand for that. So you wonder what people were using before that. You know, were they using a pair of glasses that picked up from somebody else? You know, that probably mm. were completely useless or were doing damage to their glasses to their eyes. Yeah. Mm. So things like that, and the dentists. Um, and just being able to go to the doctor for free, and not have to pay, it was, it must have been incredible. And there was a huge pressure at that, at that stage, even in the, the early days, uh, there weren't enough doctors uh, to cope with the demand. And then they had to bring in uh, prescription charges quite early on because people were, were going to the doctor. And again, it's very similar to today in the paper, there was a wee reminder that people should only go to the doctor if. They really need to go uh, to prevent the, you know, so much demand on on this on the service.
1: Isn't it funny how history is nearly repeating itself? Um, you know, we still see stories about unfit housing within the, the housing executive. You know, we still. Hear of restrictions to doctor surgeries, you know, scarlet fever's back. You know, there's things out there. I'm not going to say there's food rationing, but there are families in difficulty in this country, as we speak, uh, who have to go to food banks. Where are we with things? You know, history does repeat itself in in formats, doesn't
2: it? It does, yeah. I mean, that was one of the things we always learnt when we were studying history was that there's, there's patterns that keep repeating itself. And certainly you notice there are patterns in there. I mean one of the things that they did bring in after the war was uh mass testing for T B. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something I still remember the we mobile X ray units going round wow. to get your mm-hmm. X you know, your chest X rays. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh but in those days there was diphtheria was one of the, the things that they had to worry about, scarlet fever and uh, there was the local medical officer who had to check children going to school with lice and you know all these things that uh well, still today you have that, but uh you have reports of people in those days with houses where the the wind was coming in, the rain was coming in through the windows and through the chimneys and uh and those days there was no central heating or anything like that, so it was pretty cold, pretty. Pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, and then the roads as well, potholes in the roads and uh the state of the roads was
1: it hasn't changed. It hasn't <laughs> hasn't
2: changed, no. <laughs> so you do wonder what's progress and what's not progress. yeah
1: but, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's so true. But that, that they, they that's it's an absolutely fascinating subject and and very, very local and social history here. Uh I think there's a job for you out there. I think you could be talking to a lot of people out there and putting on slideshows and things. Did you ever think of that? (laughs)
2: Um, I'm not sure. I have done a couple of talks, but uh, I don't know about slideshows. My my technical knowledge is not that great, but uh, we did one thing that uh, we had thought about and somebody else was suggesting was maybe give tours in the summer of uh, where the places were during the war, Uh, you know, things like that. But... uh, that might be something for the future.
1: That would be fascinating. Now, how do we get copies of the books then? How how, how do we go about that, um, jury? Uh
2: At the moment, they're sold through Amazon. I'm trying to find a local supplier. Uh, I did sell them through Smith's Bookshop, but now that's closed down. So I'm trying to, to find somewhere local that maybe would stock them. But at the moment, uh, they are sold through Amazon.
1: Jury I just want to thank you so much for the conversation that we had had and uh, I think there's another book there somewhere. Now, I don't know what genre you'll go under the next time or what what, what we will look, but these are absolutely fascinating and it's lovely to reserve that for the future. So thank you so much for for coming onto the podcast.
2: Well, thank you for uh, allowing me to talk about the books and it's been uh, fascinating to, to talk to you about it as well. Thanks.
1: thank you so much to judy grove white for that interesting conversation i would hope to hear from judy in the future no doubt about that if you are interested in obtaining a copy of her book then have a look at amazon.com or amazon.co.uk the bus stops at Burndale corner newcastle county down 1946 to 1952 further snapshots from a family die so until the next down about down podcast with me chris scott stay safe and
0: keep listening If you would like to get in touch with Chris at the Down About Down podcast, then email downaboutdown at outlook.com. You've been listening to Down About Down podcast, hosted and produced by Chris Scott. For your ears only.